Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Hello. Hi. Welcome to another episode of Best Served Cold, the podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. I'm one of your hosts, Laura. I'm comprised of 73% Mountain Dew and 27% love. Lovely. Amazing. And I am your other half of the show, Tama J. The J stands for Just Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That was a bad time to take a sip of wine. As reviewed by many people. He's just okay. Not bad, not good. Imagine that. Subpar. If your parents actually, if your middle name was actually just the letter J. Yeah. And one day they were like, son, we think you're ready to find Mm. out what the J stands for. It actually stands for... Just okay. How's Tama your week? Subpar Gill. <laughs> the J stands for just subpar. Just okay. How's your week been, Tama? Pretty good. Um, it's been it's, okay? It's just been okay, yeah. actually. Ironically, just been okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with um, this week. It's just been a kind of a typical week, uh, you know, working on music. We've been working on our podcast stuff. Um, and our individual projects. We've been monitoring the socials quite a bit. Mm. Um, we've noticed like a big sort of spike in activity there and it's nice to see. And um, we've we've built a little family with our fellow yeah. podcasters, some all the way over in Texas and, and you know, I uh, believe Canada maybe. Yeah, um, we're everywhere, man. We're international. Mm. We got our first bad review. Mm. Um, which was exciting. You know you've made it when you get yes. your first bad review. And it was... Uh, Shout out to 123ibis, if something. you're listening. We'll really, really try to work on the fucking swearing. Yeah. So, um, for context, the review was that they couldn't get past all the, the swearing, swearing. So and the... that we could run a show mm, without, without all the foul language. Yeah. So now our show is produced with... Less swearing. And so more, we hope you're fucking happy. Yeah. Less swearing and more, more headless corpse fucking. <laughs> yeah. That's just the odd thing I find. Uh, I it's like that's where you that's where you you've chosen to draw the line. Like, oh, just talk more about rape. We Why talk about swear? some pretty horrendous things on this show, but the arbitrary use of words that you deem bad is yeah. what you find offensive. About we talk the about show. Ed Gein slicing clitorises off women. <laughs> And having them in boxes underneath his bed, but saying the heckin' curse words is a bit of a step too far. And I would also like to point out that Tama and I, just as general people, do swear quite a bit. And when we started this show, we made a pact that there is one word we say in the real world that we have never and will never say on this show. Because A, it's not a lot of people don't like this word, but... Especially people in the states, it's a bad word. You know what? In the states, don't. I'm, I'm no, gonna say it. No, moist. <laughs> <laughs> there, I said it. <laughs> the word that shall not be named. But no, Sue me, Ibis. We've done pretty well, I think, considering that we haven't said that word not once. Oh, but boy, do we rack up that word during the day. Yeah, it's like one of my favorite Behind words the to say. Scenes. Yeah, it's a very Australian thing as well. I feel. Yeah, it's. As casual as just saying 
mate or, you know, yeah, hello. Yeah, it's like, you're a beep. <clears throat> yeah. But we've refrained ourselves and we don't say it on this show, so... No. I don't really know what you're fucking talking about. What's Unless wrong with the swears? we're paraphrasing, which I don't think we've come up come to yet. No, I haven't covered any killer that said it or no. used I, it. So, uh, Ed Camper has said it in some some scenario. Oh, has he? I, I don't think you used it in your Kemper episode. No, though. not in my episode, but I've, I've read and heard interviews where I think he mm. said, used the word, I believe. Anyway, but you know you've really made it once you start getting negative reviews, so I feel validated in a weird way. Yeah, it's it's like we can go so long with getting like positive reviews from family members and everything, and it's once you start to get negative reviews, it's and when it's you not, know you've hit the big time. Yeah, and it's not from like obvious things where you're genuinely doing something wrong. Like your show is just shit in general, which I don't think <laughs> our show is bad. No, I don't think so. I think we've. You know, I think we we do quite well for ourselves, yeah. I would like to think. But, uh, you know, I am a, a tad biased. Yeah, I think so as well. I think our show is... Um, you know what? If any other true crime podcasters are out there, come at me, bro. I challenge you well, to 1v1 a true you. crime off. We are uh, n- no longer Egypt's uh, 38th. No. 30- we lost our status as Egypt's 36th most 36, preferred sorry. crime but that podcast. doesn't mean shit. But we cracked the top 100 in Australia, yeah. which for us, being Australians, is quite exciting. Yeah. So, you know, you take Qu- what you can get. And quite funny that we're like higher up in the ranks of Egypt than we are in our own yeah. <laughs> home country. It really says a lot. <laughs> um, who should what? <laughs> <laughs> I what? think I... You had a brain aneurysm. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think I had a small brain something wow. there. Um, wow. I was going to say, who's going first this week? And then my brain just shut. That was like a... You just witnessed my cycle restarting. Yeah, that was um, pretty intense. I think maybe I'll go first because you said your one was very long and extensive. But my one is also unsolved, so I'm wondering if we should end the episode on such an unsatisfactory note of an unsolved. Well, mine's unsolved as well. Oh well, shit. There you go. How do we do this? Every we okay. I'd like to clarify: we don't consult with each other about what topic we're going to be doing. We want to keep it fresh. I like to be surprised, and I am that type of person that will like read the movie plot on Wikipedia whilst watching the movie. So if I know what person Tamara is doing I'm going to research it beforehand because that's yeah. just the type of person that's I am kind of person you are. so we don't tell each other and yet somehow we always seem to do something similar so yours is also unsolved yes well shit this is going to be the the, the unsolved the unsolved show. we've episode. done unsolved cases before but I think I don't this think is... either of us have both done an unsolved one in the no, same I don't episode think so. though well, this is just going to leave a very... It's like a, the one-night stand of podcasts. It's it's good, but it's just not quite satisfying. Mm. So, well, yeah, f- shit, Let you go me, first then. I'll start off and then we'll end up with your one because I think your one's a bit more, uh, how you say, epic. Well, it's not that it's epic. It's just it's a huge case yeah. and we're going to have to... It, this one's going to be split across two episodes because this episode will be four hours long if I try to do it all. Mm. So yeah, all right, you go first then. Okay, so as if as you've probably read from the title, I am talking about the Alphabet Killer, a notorious unsolved uh, series of crimes 
that to this day is still being investigated with uh, new technology showing up here and there and investigators coming together to brainstorm. Even um, the men behind the uh, behavioral science division, I think it was part of the FBI, Mm -hmm. uh, they even couldn't crack what was behind this unsolved mystery. So, I'll take you all the way back to 1971. November 16th, 1971. A 10-year-old girl named Carmen Colon was running errands before running back to her home in Rochester, New York. She made a stop to a pharmacy to pick up a prescription for her grandmother, and while she was being informed that her medication was not yet ready to be picked up, she became noticeably and visibly distressed and distracted somewhat upset before leaving the store she tells the store owner whose name is jack corbin i got to go i got to go three hours later she was reported missing Mm. approximately 50 minutes after colin exited the pharmacy 38 people witnessed alongside interstate 490 the child naked from the waist down running from a reversing vehicle believed to be a dark-coloured Ford Pinto hatchback, frantically waving her arms and shouting an attempt to flag down a passing vehicle. Oh my god. At least one of these witnesses observes Colin being submissively led back to the vehicle by her abductor. Here's the real kicker. Not a single person thinks to call it in to the police until three days later. Jesus Christ. And just two days later, two teenage boys discover Colin's partially nude body in a gully not too far from Interstate 490, close to the village of Churchville. Oh my God. Right. So how many, sorry, how many people did you say, said they Approximately 38. And not one person thought to call the police? Not a single person, until three days after her body's found. Man, the 70s was some loose... Yep. Everyone was just on... Exactly. It's a day Everything. after. It's a day after <laughs> her body's found that they start calling police and being like, "Yeah, we saw some weird shit." They're like, "Well, thanks. That would have been yeah. good information three days ago." A half-naked ten-year-old running across an interstate with a man dragging her back to a car, and you don't think that's suspicious? Yeah, it's not kind just of like a... top up, like waist down naked as well. Because surely, even if you thought. It was her father. I don't know, man. I always feel like it's like report now, apologize later. Yeah, exactly. Except for those like white bitches that called the cops on African-American people in the States. That was fucked up no matter what way you look at it. But in this situation, it's like call the cops. And if you call the cops on an innocent dad whose, you know, autistic daughter was having a meltdown or or something. It's no big deal. It's safer than sorry. Yeah. I'm sure the dad, in a weird way, would be like grateful to know that someone's. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, go. That just anno- that's made yeah. me angry. Do you mind while I'm finishing off, just pouring me a little bit more? Oh, you want a little top up? Little I can do up, that. Please. So the, the, the location that her body was found was approximately 12 miles, or around, you know, in Australian and the rest of the world speak, I think it's around like 16, 20 kilometers from where Colin was last seen alive. Her coat was discovered in a, a, a gully, like a gully some 300 feet from her body. Uh, sorry, in the culvert 
somewhere 300 feet from her body. Her trousers were only discovered on November 30, close to the service road near where numerous motorists had observed her trying to escape her abductor. Uh, an autopsy revealed that in addition to have being raped, the child had suffered a fracture to her skull uh, and one to her vertebrae before she had manually st- she was she was manually strangled to death. Uh, furthering this, her body had extensively been scratched by fingernails. Oh God! Both the murder of Colin and the fact that no individual who had observed the child attempting to flee from her abductor alongside the interstate had attempted to offer her any assistance generated intense public outrage, as can be expected. Yeah. So the first suspect that they called into question and they started to interview was a man named Miguel, who was uh, Miguel Cohen, who was um, who was her uncle and referred to as Uncle Miguel. So he had a similar and uh, v- vehicle to what was identified in the witness reports. Mm. And he had ex- recently extensively cleaned out the boot of the car. Ooh, okay. Quite thoroughly with a lot of detail with strong cleaning products. So somewhere somewhere during her life, Carmen's parents had split up and her uncle, Miguel, had become very close with Carmen and her mother. Carmen's grandfather usually accompanied her to the pharmacist to get the medication for her grandmother, but on this one occasion, she managed to convince him to let her go unaccompanied. Hmm. This was the same day that she was abducted. Interesting. Two days after Carmen's reported death, allegedly, Miguel had told friends that he had to leave the country as, quote, he had done something wrong in Rochester. Okay. And to back this up, he later left to Puerto Rico very soon after, which mm. is where he and his family are originally from. Okay. But see, this is already annoying me because you've told me it's unsolved, but it very much sounds like it has a well answer. There's, I'll get to it at the end because okay. there's a whole plethora of like. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So more than a year after this initial murder. We are now jumping to April 1972. 11-year-old Wanda Wakowicz, I think it was the pronunciation. I'm really bad with, you know, New Yorker traditional... Yeah, I'm not even going to attempt to... Wakowicz, that's it. Wanda Wakowicz was wandering home after running errands, much like Carmen had the day that she was abducted. So, Wanda was gathering groceries for her family and was heading back down the road towards her house at 5.15pm. Her mother, Joyce, reported her missing around 8pm when she didn't return home. Detectives invested, uh, uh, investigated a large amount of land all near her home. So, almost 50 detectives searched several square miles of the terrain around her home, including a delicatessen and areas around the river where she was known to play. So delicatessen was where she was shopping for groceries, just mm-hmm. by the black. These searches failed to locate the child, although several neighborhood residents observed Walkowitz struggling to carry the bags of groceries walking along the north of Avenue B. Three classmates specifically observed Walkowitz bracing the bag against a fence so that she could improve her grip upon the bag as a brown vehicle drove past her. Mm. Walkowitz 
is Wagowitz's fully clothed body was found by a police officer at 10.15 a.m. the following day. It had been discarded at the base of a hillside along an access road to State Route 104 in Webster, approximately seven miles from Rochester. Mm. Mm. The position of her body had indicated that she was most likely thrown from a moving vehicle with her body rolling down the hill. An autopsy later revealed that she had been sexually assaulted, but then strangled from behind with a ligature, most likely a belt. She also had several several defensive wounds indicating that she had fought back against her attacker. And in addition, her body had been redressed after her death, so post-mortem. Mm. The autopsy also revealed traces of semen and pubic hair upon the child's body and several strands of white cat fur upon her clothing. Although, the Walkowitz family did not own a pet with this fur colour. Okay. An autopsy also revealed that there were traces of custard in her stomach contents, something that which her family would later on go on record saying she would have never eaten this at school or at home or in public. This isn't something she would eat. So it was fed to her, mm-hmm. most likely. <clears throat> so as had been the case with Carmen, investigators established an anonymous telephone hotline in addition to, dis- to um, distributing numerous flyers throughout Rochester appealing for information. So there was a reward of $10,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Walkowitz's murder. Uh, and police inquir- inquiries produced an eyewitness who informed investigators that Walkowitz had walked home from the delicatessen on the evening of April 2nd. He had observed the child standing alongside the passenger door of a large brown vehicle, conver- uh, having a conversation with the driver. The eyewitness was unable to obtain a clear view of the of the person driving, or the location of this sighting was just about two tenths of a mile from Markowitz's home. Another individual contacted investigators following the installation of the anonymous hotline, and informed investigators that she had observed a man forcing a red-haired girl matching Markowitz's description into a light-colored Dodge Dart on Conkey Avenue between 5:30 p.m. and 6 p.m on the evening of her disappearance. Now, that's the car in question, the light-coloured Dodge Dart. Everyone's identifying this suspicious attacks and coinciding with this Dodge Dart. Okay. So we've got some links between... Exactly. Yeah. But the police are still refusing to say that they're related. Yeah. However, it's clear that they might just be. Yeah. So the Rochester Police Department dismissed any suggestion of these links, although the sheriff's sergeant who had been assigned to the investigation on Colin's murder, which by this stage is still open, though largely inactive because they couldn't find any leads, was reassigned to the task force implemented to investigate the murder of Walkowitz. September 1973, a local television network, WOKR, announced plans to broadcast a televised reconstruction of Walkowitz's abduction and subsequent recovery of her body. The 30-minute episode was broadcast on 21st of October, accompanied by public appeals for witnesses to contact authorities. And although this program resulted in the Rochester Police Department receiving over 200 calls from the public, none of them were useful. 
Several months later, on the evening of November 26, 1973, 11-year-old Michelle Mainza was reported missing by her mother, Caroline, after she didn't return home from school. Later investigations were determined that Mainza was last seen by her classmates at approximately 3.20pm, walking alone en route to a shopping plaza located close to a school, with the intention of retrieving a purse that her mother had left inside a store within that plaza. Mm -hmm. Approximately 10 minutes later, a witness observed Mainza sitting in the passenger seat of a beige or tan vehicle traveling at high speed on Ackerman Street before turning into Webster Avenue. Oh, okay. According to this witness, the child had been weeping. At around 4.30pm, a witness had seen a girl matching Menza's features eating at a fast food restaurant, and keep this in mind, a fast food restaurant, Mm -hmm. with a Caucasian man between the ages of 25 to 35, roughly 6 feet tall and weighing about 165 pounds, which I believe is about 75 kilos. Tamar is the alphabet killer. No, I'm <laughs> taller than six foot, bro. Come yeah, on. True. Give me some credit. True. At 5.30 p.m. on the same night, a motorist observed a man standing by a large beige or tan vehicle with a flat tire. This was parked alongside Route 350 in the town of Woolworth, holding a girl he strongly believed to be Michelle Mainzer by the wrist. When this murderess stopped to offer assistance, the individual deliberately grabbed the girl and pushed her behind him while obscuring his license plate to the murderess's view. Uh, And later would like stare at him with such a a disturbing expression that would force the murderer to to drive away, to just leave it be. However, later on, on the uh, two nights later on in 10 at 10:30 a.m. in the morning Mainz's fully clothed body was discovered laying lying face down in the ditch alongside a rural road in Mayston approximately 15 miles from Rochester okay. so keep these names of the places that they're dumped in in mind because it all plays in at the end oh okay okay so if you're listening, I know you've probably, because I, I just, you know, mentioned it now, but if you're listening at home, you might, if you want to go back and write them down, I will not stop you because that is probably the best thing to do. So her autopsy reveals that in addition to receiving extensive blunt force trauma to her body, Mainza had been raped, then strangled to death from behind again with a ligature, possibly some sort of thin rope or a belt. And guess what else? Uh, the white hair? Bingo. Numerous strands of white cat fur <clears throat> discovered mm. on her body. As well as that, the belief samples matching the foliage where her body was discovered were uh, recovered from within one of her clenched hands, um, indicating that she had likely been strangled to death near the location where she was found. Investigators were able to retrieve a partial palm print from her neck and traces of semen from her body and underwear. A forensic analysis of the semen samples determined that she'd been raped by one individual. She's like 10. A little baby, yeah. She's an, so tiny. An analysis of the contents of Mainz's stomach reveals traces of... Custard? No. Oh. Hamburger and onions. Oh. Because 
She was at the fast seen food at place. a fast food restaurant. So it seemed that she had consumed such approximately one hour before her death. And exactly what we discovered, this was a connection between this and the reports of her with another man, six feet tall, 25 to 35, 75 mm-hmm. kilos, both at a fast food restaurant in Penfield at approximately 4.30 p.m., the afternoon of her disappearance. Mm. Okay. Here's the thing. All three victims, and if you've picked up on this, well done. All three victims, their first and their last names are matching letters. Oh, I didn't pick Michelle up Michelle Mainzer, Wanda Walkowitz, and Carmen Colon. Oh. Carmen Colon, CC, Wanda Walkowitz, WW, and Michelle Menzer, MM. Oh, okay. Not only that, Carmen Colon, her body was discovered in Churchville. Ooh. Wanda Walkowitz was discovered in Webster. Ooh. Michelle Menza discovered in Mason. Oh, that's weird. Exactly. Okay, well now I know why it's called the Alphabet Killer. That Binko, exactly right. So, this, if these murders are in fact connected, he would have had to known their names. Beforehand, mm, okay. and this is why people believe it was one person. It had yeah. to have been. It's well, it's very strange coincidence. Otherwise, as well as that, the similarities include them all being pre-adolescent females who disappeared from the, around the Rochester area in mm. late after early afternoons, or on days on either light or heavy rain. Every single one of them, their bodies were later found discovered within adjoining counties. Each of their bodies, either fully clothed or partially clothed, clothed, close to an expressway at a location typically accessible by vehicle and clear evidence that each victim had been thrown from a car or carried from a car to the location where their body had been discarded. So the way that their bodies were presented seemed to indicate that they Mm -hmm. were thrown from a vehicle. Each child was short in height, all three girls have been raped before being strangled to death. And in addition, all three were known to be somewhat as lonely outcasts amongst their peers. Mm. All three girls came from Catholic families. All three girls struggled at school. And all three girls were from poor neighborhoods. So while their background in unperforming, uh, over, their un- overall unperformance in school and being outcasts, investigators believe the killer could have been someone of a social worker who worked in schools and this could possibly indicate to how he knew their names. Yeah. So, we'll get into the the suspects. And again, we're going to go back to Michael Conlon because this is where things kind of get a little bit interesting. Okay. So, as is fairly typical, police tend to start um, looking into family members first, of especially course. around the time in yeah. the 70s. So, due to this fact, their last eyewitness report seemed to indicate that Carmen was willing to get into a car with her killer. Police thought this had to be someone she knew. Mm. Miguel Cohen. Miguel Cohen, or Uncle Cohen, as he was referred to as, um, was known to Carmen, and he was later interviewed by police about her disappearance. Okay. Miguel Cohen soon after fled to his native... Puerto Rico. Country, Puerto Rico, as we know, yeah. where he would later go on to commit suicide after a domestic violence dispute 20 years after the murder. 
Oh, okay. But if he went to Puerto Rico, how he wouldn't be able to be connected with the other ones, would he? Well, so okay. he leaves to Puerto Rico. Investigators try to follow him after he's obviously fled, and they make their way to Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico to question Miguel. Mm-hmm. Now, because two American, or I think it was a few uh, investigators from Rochester, New York, are making their way to Puerto Rico, it's caught the attention of local newspapers, which then inform, obviously, Miguel of their arrival and their intentions to interview him. So he later flees within um, March 1992. Later on that month, he would return to Puerto Rico when he when he were he would be captured and then extradited back to the New York State. During questioning, Miguel couldn't provide a single excuse for where he was during Carmen's disappearance, and no one was able to provide an alibi for him. Okay. But there's no evidence connecting him at all to her death yeah. and her murder, aside from his shitty alibi and the fact that it seemed like he was she was her, Carmen was willing to get into a car with someone that she obviously knew. Mm. 1991, nearly 20 or around 20 years after the murder of Carmen, Miguel non-fatally shoots both his wife and his brother in a dispute before shooting himself. Okay. So despite fleeing, making him look slightly guilty and the violence showed in domestic violence incidents, there's still nothing... That can really yeah, no cement evidence. them together. But it seems like police never really tried to indict him or charge him with the murder of Carmen anyway. Because there was just nothing solid for them to yeah. really latch yeah. onto. Okay. So we'll jump back to the person who tried to approach the the alphabet killer when he was violently holding Michelle Mainzer at the fast food restaurant. Wait, or, was it uh, sorry, not that. No, it wasn't that. Sorry, um, I misspoke. This was after the the fast food restaurant when they were later approached by a, a motorist who tried to intervene when he was being violent with her. Yeah. God, gay story straight. I'm so me. sorry. So, even though, um, even with the kidnapper trying to block off his license plate, the motorist was still able to gather parts of it, and later, several days later. Is able comes across the exact same car, writes down the license plate and gives an exactly full description to the police. Mm, okay. This leads to a man living with his family in Lyons, New York, 40 miles from Rochester. The suspect had a similar car to that of the description and a strong resemblance to the witness sketches. Uh, and he also had prior petty crimes on his rap okay. schedule. So it's all looking pretty good. However, his alibi was that he was out looking for jobs all day. And after investigators go through his phone records, they discover that his alibi is airtight. And he even passes a polygraph test. Okay. This isn't the last suspect that they think could have been the person. So we're going mm-hmm. to get into who, uh, who they think or who the general public think was involved with the murders of all three women, or at least some of them. Okay. Dennis Tamini is a local firefighter in Rochester. He was known as the Garage Rapist. 
Lovely. So this is a well-known case, the garage rapist. He raped at least 14 women between 1971 and 1973, which coincide with the years of the alphabet murders, 1971 to 1973. Mm. He also owned a beige-colored car and uh, uh, lived, sorry, close to the area where... Witnesses last reported seeing Michelle Mainzer. Okay. Five weeks after Mainzer's death, Tamini attempted to pull a gun on a teenage girl with the intent of abducting her. When she starts to scream, he gets scared and uh, flees from the scene, tries mm. again later on with a different girl, who is then who then turns to the police, reports him, and the police soon after launch a uh, an investigation and uh, and a, 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 try to arrest Tumani. Yeah. However, Tumani knows now that he's being pursued and decides to shoot himself in the head. Oh, okay. Years later, they would attempt autopsies on Tumani's DNA. They would compare his DNA to semen samples collected at Wanda Walkowitz's crime scenes. However, they yielded no positive results. Okay. Manza was the only crime scene they could partially tie him to with the proximity to her crime scene mm-hmm. um, with his, where he lived. But the other the other little little detail, his car had all types of white cat hair throughout. Ooh. So where you took your research off, did it say that they couldn't like accurately compare the DNA or that it what it definitively wasn't a match. It was no matches. Right. So no results yielded that there were the same DNA. Okay. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't connected to the Manzo murders. Yeah. Because they couldn't I don't think they had the DNA to test for that case. They tested for an entirely different case which they thought he was involved part of in. the Wanda Walkowitz. Right. So wow. However that's the thing. If he has no connection to the Wanda Walkowitz murder, who also had the white cat fur, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's highly it's, likely he's y- not. But he's connected to the Mainzer case, and she also had white cat fur on her. Mm. But the Carmen case, no white cat fur. Interesting. Okay. Another suspect is Kenneth Bianchi. So, to those who are into true crime, fans of um, true crime ourselves, I have heard of this. Laura's heard of this. Kenneth Bianchi should be a well-known name. In Rochester, New York, he was one half of the Hillside Stranglers, who were responsible for deaths of about 10 women between the years of 1977 and 1978. Bianchi was caught... When he was when he committed a pair of murders without his partner Angelo Buno, and made a mess of the entire crime scene, Bianchi was living in Rochester at the time of the Alphabet murders. He didn't move to L.A. until 1975. Hmm. So, okay. adds up. He was also employed as an ice cream vendor, a security guard, and an ambulance driver, all of which would have provided Bianchi with uniforms, which would have made him seem approachable to a young girl. Yeah, especially an ambulance. Mm. There was also forensic evidence from the crime scene of Wanda's murder, which could only be found present in 20% of males. 
Bianchi's profile fell within this 20%, all of which seemingly made Bianchi a very good suspect, at least on paper. Police decided to match a wrist print they had obtained from Michelle Mance's murder and compare it to Bianchi, but unfortunately, like the last suspect, it's not a match. Okay. However, the thing is with wrist prints, they tend to change over time as the skin alters and loses elasticity. So they couldn't completely rule out Bianchi as a uh, as a suspect, as there was a ten year gap between the print being made and it being compared to Bianchi himself. Okay. So it's worth mentioning that. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth pointing out that there's no evidence that Bianchi ever killed anyone before teaming up with Angelo Buno. So. The one time he did kill alone, he was caught due to the mistakes he's made. Yeah. And it seems like the alphabet killers were committed by one person. Also, Bianchi is quite infamous, so it makes you think that one of the many witnesses involved in the alphabet murders may have recognized him. Yeah, very true. As he was revealed as one of the hillside stranglers. Yeah, that's another good point. Man, okay. Yeah. So still to this day, people consider Kenneth Bianchi as a possible suspect for the alphabet murders. Um, Bianchi, on the other hand, is adamant that he had nothing to do with the murders of Carmen, Wanda, and Michelle. Though he claims not to be of the Hillside Strangler too, so take that with a pinch of salt. He also told police in the past to either charge him with the murders or leave him alone as he is tired of being linked to murders. Poor soul. Yeah. Oh, you poor baby. Crime me a fucking river. Oh, it's just a shame that you like to murder people yeah, then. you fucking strangler. don't murder people <laughs> and then people won't connect you to murders. Strangly strangler. Pretty strangler. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say you that. You silly strangler. What? Not bringing Dora into this. Bring it. I already did. Strangler, no strangling. (laughs) (laughs) No. You said it. I did. It was like a knee-jerk. I couldn't help myself. It was a knee-jerk reaction. So we're um, continuing with the list of suspects. Joseph Nasso. On April 11th, 2011, police arrested a 77-year-old man named Joseph Nasso and charged him with the murders of four women. His victims were Roxanne Rogash, Pamela Parsons, Tracy Tafoya, and Carmen Colon. No relation to the Rochester victims. No way. Yeah. Two girls with the same name. Carmen Colon. No way. It's him. Yeah. It's got to be him. All of the four women being prostitutes. And just to reiterate this, Carmen Colon yeah, not, in no way related the, to the yeah. previous Rochester victim. However, due to the double initials in his victims, I don't know if you picked up on that, Roxanne R. Pamela yeah, Parsons, yeah, yeah. He, these crimes were referred to as the alphabet murders of California. And during a search of Nassau's so home... So, opposite coasts. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, during the search of Nassau's home, police found a disturbing journal that he had kept. In the journal, he wrote about how he empowered, raped, and uh, overpowered, raped and killed 10 victims. Eventually, two more of his victims would be identified as Sarah Dillon and Sharia Payton. Unfortunately, the other four women remain unidentified. These last two women, obviously not having the alphabet alphabet. connection. Did you know if they were also left in counties that had the same... No, no. it, it wasn't 
one it wasn't written and I don't think it was. I think it was just okay. random. It, it a lot of this stuff is kind of coincidental. Right. You could chalk it all up to being coincidences yeah. for sure. But it's the connections it's that make it odd. interesting. Yeah, of course. So Nasso had uh, numerous pictures of women in various states of undress situations which all seemingly they looked unconscious. Aww. Some of which they later found to be his murder victims. Not only was Nasso linked to the double initials of his victims and those in the Rochester alphabet murders, but also because his modus operandi was to offer a lift in his vehicle before murdering the, the victims, similar to how people police believe yeah. the Rochester perpetrator enticed his victims. And is he <clears throat> accounted for in the time that the murders were happening? Of the young girls? I think it's around the same time. Right. So he was frame. on the opposite side of the country. Yeah. So uh, he, uh, it doesn't. It wasn't specified when he was doing these things. Right. Well, I, I guess know, you'd have to then research. Yeah, exactly. I, I kind of just researched his arrest. Right. But I didn't research when he was doing these things. But it, it seemingly it, 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 there's some sort of a link there yeah. that you could you could you could chalk it together. Um, police were given a further hope as Joseph Nassau was born in Rochester, New York. Ooh. And lived there for many him. years. Yeah. <gasps> it's got to be him. We've Has just solved it. <laughs> not unsolved anymore. Oh, yeah. Um, sorry. I, and he he included the time period he lived there coincided with when the young girls were murdered. It's him. Does he have a white cat? No. <laughs> That's no, the only you thing. don't know? No, he doesn't have a white cat. Or did he have a white cat? He, he might have, yeah. Have a white cat. Uh, so as promising as all this seemed, police and the families of the victims were again left disappointed when NASA was later cleared of the Rochester murders by DNA evidence. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know what would be, like, really exciting? Yes. So when one of my favourite podcasts, My Favourite Murder, they covered joseph d'angelo before he was joseph d'angelo yeah back in one of their first episodes oh before he was caught before he was caught Fuck. they covered his case before he was caught it was like their fifth it was like one of the very first episodes they did like in the first 10 or 20 i'm pretty sure and then they got to do an episode when he was caught being like holy fuck like, holy shit can you imagine if we got to do an episode about Mr. Cruel or the other oh, yeah. killer or yeah, one of these sure. guys. And then out of nowhere, they're fucking caught. I mean, they're still trying to catch Mr. Cruel and the alphabet killer. Well, that's the crazy thing. Like, technology is only going to get better and better and better. Yeah. And our ways of... Well, I hope our ways of assessing DNA are only going to get better and better and better. And mm-hmm. hopefully, more cases like the Golden State Killer will be found and caught. Well, here's the thing. that To this day, still... It's a mystery, and people are still trying to. Uh, people are still investigating the three murders, yeah, and the connections to all these murders. I just thought it was so funny. Sorry, I can see that you're not done, but I just have to say, I found it so funny because they're currently the D'Angelo trials are currently underway. Yeah, which are halted from the virus. No, 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 they're happening. Oh, they're happening now. They're happening. Oh, he's shit. he's been in court like this <clears> week. <throat> And there's footage of the court when they talk about how small his dick is. And the whole, the whole courtroom is just laughing at him on the stand while he's made to sit there. And they're all laughing at him and his small penis. That's which amazing. Just, 
obviously <laughs> what he did is so horrendous and that in no way, but it's like such a small thing. A it's small like, victory. You're a piece of shit yeah. and you have a small dick and we're all going <laughs> to laugh at you and your tiny penis. I just, it just gave me this like small That's so good. Like, yeah. we, 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 I need to watch that with you when we're done wrapping up this um, this episode. So, um, so just to continue, Robert Ressler, which if you know the name, was one of the behavioral science members of the FBI, the man who coined up the term serial killer. I thought that was John Douglas. No, he oh. worked with John Douglas right. in the behavioral okay. science unit. Right. But he, Robert Ressler, was the one who came up with the term serial killer. Oh, okay. So if you remember the the Mindhunter series on Netflix, mm. um, obviously based on both men, but with different names, the younger of which being the the man who kind of like orchestrates this whole change and reform, and the man who, the, the character who is based on Robert Ressler. Right. Okay. Also comes up with the term serial killers, calling him like sequence killers at the start, but then they switch over to serial killers. Mm, interesting. Um, even he was stumped with this case, and he didn't believe the same person conducted all three killings. So he thought that since the Carmen's murder seemed was more aggressive, considering she had blunt force trauma to the head. Um, no, Siri, I didn't ask you for your opinion. Thank you for Siri that. Siri is the outfit. Great. Yes, yeah, Siri. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is She's me. Like, okay, I confess. So Karma's murder was much more aggressive and different to the other victims. She didn't receive food before her death. Oh, okay. So, and also different from the other victims, Karma's death was death by strangulation by the hands. Mm. The other victims, Which is death by ligature. is much more of a personal, Exactly. Yeah, okay. Other victims were by ligature. So a right. rope, belt, etc., etc. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 still going on to this day. They think that Carmen's murder could have been much more of a, a crime of passion, either by the uncle, who mm-hmm. obviously killed himself years later, but they couldn't find any connection to him in the crime scene. The other ones seem like they could have been connected to that man who had the white cat in his car, but also the strangulation in Rochester yeah. cases. It's... One of those cases where it's just two of them so far have committed suicide. Yeah. Some of them are locked up for different crimes. Who the fuck knows? Very weird. However, you can find some solace in the fact that they're still investigating it to this day. Well, I'm glad. And I hope that all these crimes that are never solved, they don't ever stop trying to investigate it. Yeah. So I think they're trying to like act on the mistakes that the police made in the 70s around this time because it seemed like they left the Carmen case somewhat inactive after they couldn't find any evidence mm. which I'll, I'll say this it isn't entirely their fault it's a hard case oh yeah and yeah. I obviously when police or investigators just do dumb stuff you yeah. want to kind of shake them condemn them but I have you know issues really having anger at any police in the 70s because a they really didn't know anything about no serial killers and b dna technology would have been so dated back then yeah that's why they're that's why years later they tried to connect the the dna between 
um, between one of the victims to a suspect is they th- they had better technology to do so. Mm. And it's the same thing, Mister Cruel. They're tr- they're using they're trying to use hereditary um, methods of discovering DNA connections. That's how they call it, the Golden State Killer. Years you just have after. to hope that like they're not dead. The people that did these crimes haven't died. Well, yeah, and that's the thing that they thought about Mister Cruel is they thought he the 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 who they think it was they is currently dead. I reckon it should be legal that when you die. A sample of your DNA is just taken and just run against all unsolved crimes. Yeah, for sure. Because I mean, you're already dead at that point. It's not like a you. It's going to be kept on file and sp- like you're dead. Yeah, but, but I mean, like look, the not to step on anyone's piece. toes, but there's a whole fucking religious aspect to it. Yeah, I know. Where it's like but the it's preservation like, just, of the body. Just do it on the just sneaky. Just yeah. take it. Just, just do it on do the DL. What they did to catch um, Joseph D'Angelo. They yeah. A little bit of a uh, sneaky maneuver there, a little off the records thing. Okay, are you ready? Here for we this? here we fucking go. I'm actually really nervous to do this one. Let's because... just provide some context to this. This is a big, big case. So I'm actually really nervous to do this one because it's one of those ones. Everyone has heard about it. Everyone's listened to a podcast or watched a documentary or done their own reading online. So everyone is like an expert on this case. So I'm very nervous. This is the most research I've done for one of these episodes. Like normally we will both dedicate like a couple of solid hours to researching our topics. I've spent like four days researching this. And it's still going to have to be split into two episodes. Yeah. So I'm doing JonBenet Ramsey, which on its own is a case. Like the actual crime itself is so sadly not that... I hate to use the word exciting because you're talking about a a child being murdered. But it's not like a Ted Bundy where it's these really vicious crimes one after the other. But... It's just this little girl and she was a child beauty pageant and it just like the Madeleine McCann story, it just caught the attention of an entire nation and then the entire world. Mm. And there's so many different weird things about the case and different theories about it that have kept people interested to this day. Um, There's actually been sort of a, not a break in the case, but some new information in the case that came to light in 2016, which I will talk about. Oh, shit. Next week. Okay. Because this week I'm going to focus on, I guess, the facets of evidence within the case because even just that on its own, there's a lot to cover. So I'm going to really kind of lightly cover the actual crime just in case you are listening to this, although I don't know how you could possibly be listening to a true crime pro- podcast and not know the story of Jean Benet. But if you are listening to this and you don't know what happened, I'm going to like cover it well yeah this is even even one that i'm not too familiar with as well so be interesting yeah so jean benet ramsey was born august 6 1990 so she would have actually she's she would have been two years older than me shit so she would have been 30 in like two weeks which is really sad. sad yeah so she was american child beauty queen 
And on December 25th, 1996, she was murdered in her own home and found in her basement approximately seven hours after being reported missing by her family. So she'd sustained a broken skull from a blow to the head and was strangled. Her official cause of death was ruled as asphyxia by strangulation, strangulation associated with craniocerebral trauma. And her death has always from day one been ruled as a homicide, but mm-hmm. it's unsolved this day. So as I said, as a as a standalone case, this is a really tragic story, but it's really no different from that awful hundreds of child murders and child assaults that you hear about every day. What makes it interesting is the rabbit hole you fall into as soon as you start looking into this case because people are obsessed with it yeah. and there are so many different things that you can focus on and so many different theories like i think i swung back and forth between two things about 12 times while looking oh, really? at wow. the evidence because at one point i was like no, no 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 her family definitely did it and then you'd read something else you'd be like oh no 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 no, no. it was definitely an Shit. intruder so it's like the baskins and the dingo story yeah and then you'd read something else you'd be like oh no no no, no, no. her brother definitely did it and then you'd read something else you'd be like oh no no, no, no. it was definitely an intruder it was definitely an intruder wow so just strap yourself in okay I'm strapped in. So, the first things about the case are as follows. So, Patsy Ramsey notices JonBenet is missing and calls the police. Patsy has always told the authorities... Patsy's her mother, by the way. Okay. Patsy has always told the authorities that she called the police after finding a handwritten ransom note that had been placed on the kitchen staircase. And we'll come back to this ransom note. Wow. So, two police officers respond to the call and are at the home within three minutes of the 911 call, which is also important to the theories that we'll cover next week so they conduct an initial sort of brief search of the home but they find nothing and they also find no sign of forced entry or exit they do search the basement roughly as part of the original investigation now while searching the basement officer rick french comes across a door that's secured from the inside with a wooden latch since at this stage he's only looking for exit routes, he sees that it's been locked from the inside, so he doesn't bother opening the door to look inside. While Jean Bonnet is still missing, her father John makes arrangements to pay the ransom that's demanded in the note, and the forensic team is sent to the house. So they all believe that she has been kidnapped, so the only room that's originally cordoned off is Jean Bonnet's bedroom. So that's the only room in the whole house that's cordoned off as a crime scene, which is okay. a big hole in this case because there's police and investigators and friends and family who Trampling come over everything. that just trample through the whole yeah. house as well. You know, you know, you you everyone has that friend. I'm that friend who, if something traumatic has happened, they'll come over and they'll be like, "Oh, I'll clean the kitchen," or "I'll make you a cup of tea." Oh no! So they've got friends and family who even come and like spray down and wipe and oh, clean the kitchen no. counters. So they're literally just like, "Oh, you cleaning fucking idiots!" Away evidence, probably thinking that they're being good friends. To their credit, the police didn't fucking corner these things. No, off. the police don't stop them. The police let everyone just trample through the whole crime scene. So Detective Linda Arndt. I'm, ho- I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly, arrives on scene at 8 a.m. the following morning with the goal of awaiting the call from the kidnappers to organize collection of the ransom money. So at this stage, the only people known to have been inside the house the night of her disappearance are Patsy, her mother, 
John, her father, and Burke, her nine-year-old brother. At 1 p.m., Detective Aunt asks John and a family friend, Fleet White, to search the house to see if, quote, anything seems amiss. And an article I read said that John was basically pacing the living room and the detective gave it to him as sort of busy work to just be like, oh, go look around the house. Right. So John goes down to the basement. He opens the latch door, which the police officer had previously seen and not opened, and he finds Jean Bonnet's body inside the room. Oh, She's found dear. with her mouth covered in duct tape, nylon cords around her wrists and neck, and her torso covered by a white blanket. John picks up her body and takes it upstairs. So further just yeah. ruining the crime scene. So there's an autopsy that's performed, and as I said before, her death is ruled as a homicide by waves, strangulation and a skull fracture. There's no evidence of conventional rape, but sexual assault can't be ruled out entirely. Mm -hmm. No semen is found, but there are signs of vaginal injury with the pathologist noting that her area appears to have been wiped with a cloth. Huh. So the garot, the garot used on her was made from... Garot? Is that... Garot? Garot. Garot? It's a word that I've always seen spelt, but never said out loud. So it's made from a nylon cord and the broken handle of a paintbrush. The bristle end of the brush is later found in Patsy's art supplies, but the bottom third of the brush is never found. To this day, they never found it. The autopsy reveals that a fruit or vegetable which resembles pineapple was eaten by Jean Benet a few hours before her death. A bowl of pineapple was on the kitchen table with a spoon in it. However, neither parent remembers feeding it to the girl and only Burke and Patsy's fingerprints were found on a bowl. So initially, considering there's no signs of forced entry, the investigation hones in on Patsy and John and kind of lasers in on that theory, which some people argue means, much like the Chamberlain case, they've potentially missed other evidence because they become so blinded mm. about looking at the parents. So that's the most basic bare-boned facts of the case and what happened before we sort of dive in because it's going to be a it's long... It's a big one. It's a big a, boy. It's going to be a long one. A long boy. Oh, okay. So I'm going <clears> to... <throat> specifically talk about a few pieces of evidence because as i said just the kind of four or five main pieces of evidence on their own are like huge to talk about right so there's like four five there's several four different there's, there's, we'll, yeah i think there's four or five and then next week we'll sort of dive more into the main theories around what people wait for that think has happened Excited. so first of all the ransom note. Yeah. So, I didn't mention at the start how long the ransom note was. So, generally, if you were going to write a ransom note, why you would, I don't know. Let's just hypothetically, you're going to write a ransom note. Yeah. You've kidnapped someone and you're writing a <laughs> ransom note, hypothetically. Yeah. How long would you say this ransom note is? I think it would be very short. It would be, I have your daughter. I, she's fine. Yeah. She's hidden with me. Pay blah 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 if you she's, want to hear. She's hidden with me. I've, I've hidden you're not her very with good. me. You can tell you would never hurt a fly because right. you're not great <laughs> yeah. at writing. My this. Would be like, she's hidden with me. I've carefully she's, taken care of her. 
Okay, she's ten to so be. So we've established that most people would say a ransom note's probably going to be like a paragraph or a page. Very this, short. This ransom note is two and a half pages long. A two and a half. What? Two and a half page handwritten ransom. Like note. an A four page. Yeah. What the fuck? So authorities have always believed that the note was staged, as the yeah, only fingerprints yeah. found on the note are Patsy's, and the authorities who handled the note. So there's no other fingerprints that's ever found Whoa. on this ransom note. The note is also written with a pen and pad that is inside the home. So going off that, you're saying an intruder has broken into the home, gotten your daughter, murdered her, put her in the wine cellar, and then come back upstairs to sit at the kitchen table and write a two and a half page ransom note. But the only connection is to Patsy. Correct. And investigators. Correct. Whoa. But the the pen and paper it's written on is from inside the house. So if you're going from for the intruder theory, no matter what you believe, the note is written inside the house. Okay. So if you're going with the intruder theory, you're believing that someone has theoretically murdered a child and then sat down in the middle of the night where anyone could potentially walk down to write a two and a half page ransom note. Yeah. Which is still hard to believe, but also not... We can't rule it out just yet. It's possible. It's possible, but there was a certified forensic pathologist, Michael Barron, who was quoted as saying that in his 60-year career, he'd never seen a note like this, and he, in his opinion, doesn't believe it was written by an outside stranger. Mm. So I found this amazing source that I actually used for a few different pieces of the evidence that goes into this huge amount of detail about this note. So I'm going to highlight some of the important parts because, as I said, the note's two and a half pages long, so I'm not reading the whole thing. So first of all, the note refers to whoever has taken Jean Bonnet as a group of individuals, Uh, which just makes no sense to refer to yourself in that way. As a group, yeah. As a group of individuals. Yeah. The note then goes on to say that they represent a small foreign faction. Now, from a psychological perspective, a kidnapper would never use the word small because they would want to be psychologically displaying a sense of power and they yes. wouldn't use words like small because it minimizes themselves. Exactly. Towards the beginning of the letter, the words business and possessions are misspelled. Later though, the words deviation and attache, which I looked up and it means a person who is like an ambassador, yeah. are spelled correctly. Attaché also has an accent on the E, which is also included. Huh. So it seems odd that two relatively common words at the beginning of the letter are misspelled. However, further down, two arguably much more difficult words Complex. to spell are correct, which lends itself to the theory that whoever wrote the note is purposely trying to make themselves look less intelligent. Ah. Jean Bonnet's name also has an accent, which is spelt correctly with the accent which many people know Patsy Ramsey was accustomed to writing and With using an the accent when she wrote. But oh. in saying that, Jean Bonnet was also a relatively famous child beauty pageant queen. So you right. could argue that okay. if it was an intruder that knew her from that ring, like if it was a pedophile that knew her, he would know how to spell her name. It's correctly. obviously someone who knew her. Yeah. So the ransom specifically requests $118,000, which was the exact same amount of money that John Ramsey had received from his work as a Christmas bonus, which many people believe only people at his work or people within the family would know. Whoa. 
so that's another weird thing. Further down the letter, further down the letter, the writer refers to two gentlemen watching over your daughter. The sentence, the two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them, is not very, like, aggressive language. This would indicate that a woman has written the note. Other statements in the ransom note, such as, I advise you to be rested, also show a feminine touch. In yeah, how psychologically absolutely. they're written. No dudes writing that, I can tell you yeah. that. So, a few other things about the way the note is written. Now, I already said that the pattern pen came from the house. Yeah. Not only that, though, they've been placed back in the exact position that they were taken from, which Ooh. would suggest that the person writing the note did it either from a force of habit or because they had a subconscious tie to wanting to keep the house tidy and in order. Yeah. Which really, realistically, no kidnapper would have. They'd take the note and the pad of paper to the kitchen table and probably leave it on the table. Yeah, or discard of the pen, probably. Yeah. Possibly. So there's also six handwriting analysis to testify that they believe the handwriting on the note is a match for Patsy Ramsey. However, handwriting analysis isn't necessarily like a science and it's not something that will hold up in court on its own. And most courts also have a split opinion on whether to even allow it as admissible information. Of course. As well, most people have been noted to say that the specific type of pen used to write it, which was like a felt tip marker, because it bleeds when you write it on paper, uh. it also does distort and mask like small, um, like imperfections and small quirks about people's specific handwriting. Right. It's also noted that as well as the actual note, investigators find a practice note, which all it says is, Mr. and Mrs. I, and it starts in very shaky handwriting and then it's abandoned. Hmm. So the other argument is that this placement of the note is really odd. So it's placed in the at the base of their main sort of spiral staircase because they lived in a mansion. They were very, very well off. Oh, okay. So it's placed at the base of the stairs, which suggests that it was done by someone who had an intimate knowledge of the family's morning routine. Because, for instance, when we, when I wake up, the first thing I do is I go to the toilet. Yeah. So, you would think that generally a ransom note would either be put somewhere common, like a kitchen table or something, or on the bed of the child that has been taken. Yeah. However, Patsy had the routine of when she woke up, the first thing she'd do is she'd go straight downstairs before doing anything else to make coffee. So this suggests that whoever placed the note knew her routine well enough to know that she would be the first one up and she would be to go down the stairs straight away to find the note immediately. Right. And there's the connections to the the company. Correct. The ransom. So those are sort of the big weird things about the note. There are other things, but like it's this is going to be a long ride. So I'm trying to just sort of touch on the Yeah, the skim that shit. So the next odd thing worth discussing is the 911 the 911 call Patsy makes upon discovering the notes. Mm-hmm. Now, okay, as we know from many cases, especially cases back in this time, you can't use someone's panic response as fodder against them because we now know that everyone reacts to awful situations. Definitely. Everyone's trauma and panic response is different. Mhm. And it can't, it's not a genuine indicator for how they're feeling. So at around 5.50, Patsy makes a call from their wall phone a few feet away from where the note was found to 911. The call starts with her saying, we have a kidnapping. 
Now, many people have said that the lack of specifics in this phrase is not something that a truthful person would say. A normal expected response would be something like, our daughter has been kidnapped or our daughter is missing. The lack of specifics can indicate that she's purposely telling a lie or trying to make create a story. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. Create Like, create a scenario. So, when the operator questions her further, asking who has taken JonBenet, Patsy says, SBTC victory. Now, the note is signed the other way around. Victory, SBTC. Some argue that the only reason that you'd say it back to front is if you have it memorized in your head already well enough to know it, but not know it well enough. Because if she was reading it directly off the note, she would have said it it, the right way around. Another thing is she refers to herself as the mother. Not her mother, not Jean Bonnet's mother, the mother. And many argue that this is her attempting to distance herself because she knows Jean Bonnet is already dead. Okay. So in 2017, the 911 operator, Kimberly Arculetta, came forward to talk about the call. She's always maintained that there was something off about the call, particularly the way Patsy was acting. So after Patsy thinks that she's hung up the phone, Kimberly keeps the line open. Kimberly believes voices can be heard in the background with Patsy saying, baby, what did you do? Kimberly is quoted as saying, what bothered me immensely, it sounded like she said, okay, we've called the police, now what? And that disturbed me. She said, so I remained on the phone trying to hear what was being said. It sounded like there were two voices in the room, maybe three different ones. I had a bad feeling about this. To me, it seemed rehearsed and that's never changed. Interesting. Mm. So many people also say that the fact that she hangs up in the first place is really odd. So when you're panicking, the first responder like that 911 operator is your lifeline. And they also encourage you to stay on the phone until the police arrive at the home. And like subconsciously, you want to stay on the phone with them because that's your, that's, this is the person that's going to help you. So you want to have that emotional support by having them on the phone with you. Yeah. Whereas Patsy just hangs up, hangs up. and leaves. And sorry to interrupt you, but so you're saying um, the, the police have a, way, have a way to, when the call's ending, they can end it on their end, but they can still hear into what Patsy is saying. No, I think the phone just wasn't hung up correctly. Right. Okay. <clears throat> From what I can tell. Okay. So this last portion of the phone call, which goes for about a minute... Mm-hmm. has been analysed by no less than nine different organisations, including Shit. the FBI, top-tier investigators, and all the way down to some internet sleuth detectives. Okay. No one had really heard anything until there was an SBS documentary about the case where they analysed this last section of the recording when Patsy puts the phone down. Now, I listened to the enhanced call. I do that in air quotes. And I tried to do it before I read the portion of what it allegedly said. I will openly admit I can't hear anything that they say is allegedly said. Right. To me, it just sounds like static and mumbling. Because you know, as soon as someone says, oh, you play this and you'll be able to hear this. Your brain brain can make the sound. Exactly. Yeah. So if you haven't heard this enhanced call... I would encourage you to pause the episode now and YouTube Jean Benet Enhanced Call and have a listen 
before I go on and have your own opinion. Do you want to play in the episode? Do you want them just to listen um, to it outside? No, just listen to it on your own time. Fair so enough. if you want to just pause here, I'm going to keep going in three, two, one. Okay, so allegedly in the background at the end, as Kimberly said, you can hear three voices of which people believe are Patsy, John, and Burke, the younger brother. Okay. Now, this documentary claims the in, in the enhanced version, you can hear John say, we're not speaking to you. Then Patsy says, what did you do? Help me, Jesus. And Burke says, what did you find? Now, I'd like to stress again, the FBI themselves have analyzed this recording and have found nothing. So take an SBS documentary, sorry, CBS documentary with a grain of salt. Okay, so that's the 911 call. Fuck so me. the next thing is the basement where they find Jean Bonnet's body. God. So in the basement, there's a small sort of room off the basement, which they called the wine cellar, but it was really just kind of a room where they stored stuff. And it was noted as like having mold growing on the floors and the walls. Gross. Like it wasn't like a, it was like a, a under the well house. used yeah. room. The basement is searched twice by police and others before Jean Benet's body once first where they don't open the door and then a second time where Ramsey's friend sorry John's friend Fleet White testifies that he later actually did go into this locked room but didn't see a body huh okay so when John is given something to do he goes straight to the basement straight to the wine cellar and immediately finds Jean Benet's body so wow. many people uh... argue that this whole time, John has known that Jean Benet was in the basement. Yeah. Someone searched it once. Someone searched it twice. And he's sitting up there just going, just find, just, I just need you to find the body already. Yeah. And so he gets anxious and goes, oh, I'm going to go search the basement I'll and immediately find the body. Yeah. Now, initially the police say that there's no sign of forced entry, which indicates the killing must have occurred inside the house. <clears throat> But later they do discover, because keep in mind it was Christmas Day when this happened, that there's several windows open in the basement which have been left ajar to let power cords out for the Christmas lights. Right. There was also one window that's completely smashed where John himself had claimed that he kicked it out a few weeks earlier when he locked himself out of the house. So he kicked out the basement window to get into the basement to then get into the house because he'd locked himself out of the house. Okay. However... It's noted that many of these windows, which are ajar, have undisturbed cobwebs and dust in the tracks as well as around the frames, Ooh. which many people argue means that they That'd can't be... have been disturbed. Right. Also in the basement, this part is very creepy. They find a blue suitcase which was resting against a wall directly below the broken window. It was thought that this was brought in to take Jean Bonnet away. Patsy initially denies that it's theirs and doesn't know where it comes from, doesn't belong to anyone in the family. However, it's later to be found to be John's other oldest son. It's his suitcase. And inside the suitcase is a Dr. Seuss book and a blanket encrusted with the semen of John's son. <gasps> Whoa. So, you know, make, make of that what you will. Gross. The investigation of the suitcase doesn't really go any further, though, because John's son isn't in town at the time of the murder but it's right. still like he was at this time he was in college so everyone's like why the fuck do you have a dr seuss book and you're jacking off in your own blanket you carry like, it with you and it's kept in your parents basement yeah 
what's going yeah. on there, son? <laughs> yeah, it's very, very strange. Yeah. So one of the investigators on the case, who was very much behind the intruder theory, summarized that there was a partial footprint on top of the suitcase, which meant someone had shimmied through the basement window. Mm-hmm. And he goes so far as to shimmy through the window himself to prove that someone could fit. So the last sort of big piece of evidence that I'm going to cover is the actual DNA evidence. Okay. So the first thing I do need to say, because we like to try and present an unbiased review. Indeed. There is zero DNA evidence to link any of the family members definitively to the murder. And in 2016, the family was actually formally exonerated in the case. However, most people still think they did it. So in the autopsy, injuries are found in her vaginal area consistent with assault shortly before her death, as well as potential older injuries indicating assault had occurred prior to this. Wooden shards from the paintbrush that was used to strangle her were also found internally, indicating that she was assaulted with the paintbrush, which is awful. So there's one theory which indicates that a stun gun was potentially used on Jean Bonnet, and there's abrasions below her right ear, like on her face and mm-hmm. on her lower back, that they can't say are definitively caused by a stun gun, but the coroner's report has noted that the markings are consistent with that and they were of a stun n- gun. No, for sure. Yeah. But there is another theory about those marks. Okay. So there was a single pubic hair found on the blanket which covered... John Bonnet's body, and this hair doesn't match any of the Ramseys. There is also animal hair um, in her hand, as well as on the duct tape that was on her mouth, that doesn't match anything that was found in the Ramseys' house. Strange. There was also a single drop of blood found on her underwear, which does not match any occupants of the house, and this is one of the pieces of evidence that's actually used to clear the family. However, other other investigators have put forth the idea that this trace piece of evidence could be from DNA from the manufacturers of wherever the underwear came from. And these people did tests on unused underwear and found that, in fact, you can find trace amounts of DNA from foreign people on clean underwear, which has never been used. Yeah, from when they get manufactured. That throws a fucking spanner in the works for all investigators. Yeah. Fucking hell. So that kind of calls into question whether this single piece of DNA is really enough to realistically clear the family. Now, in her stomach, as I mentioned previously, the autopsy report notes that there is a, 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 a substance that resembles pineapple found in her small intestine, which would have meant it had to have been there. She would have had to eat it at least an hour and a half before her death. Again, this is something that kind of has been called into question because obviously everyone's rate of digestion is different. different everyone's yeah. metabolism is different, but that's a kind of ballpark idea. When the Ramses came home because they were at a Christmas party before, like a Christmas day party, they maintained that Jean Bonnet went straight to bed. She didn't eat anything, which sort of makes you think, why would you lie about that? Yeah, because obviously she had. Yeah. And there was a bowl of pineapple found in the kitchen with a spoon in it with Patsy and Burke's fingerprints on it. So this plays into a whole part yeah, of Yeah, for sure. That's very sus. But Patsy, like, viciously denies this. In one 
interview tape, she's actually basically snarling at the officers, saying that she put Jean Benet straight to bed and there was no pineapple and she didn't feed her anything and she doesn't know why they're asking about this pineapple. See, that's strange. Yeah. That's odd. So that the pineapple thing is like one of the big things in one of the theories, which is that her younger brother right. accidentally. For sure, yeah. Or maybe not so accidentally. Like Jay, like uh, Halloween style. Mike kind Myers. of. Yeah. Um, so there's one more brief thing I'm going to talk about and then I'm going to wrap this shit up. Okay. And I'm going to go into depth on the different theories next week. Because nice. otherwise we're going to be talking about this I'm So excited forever. So there's another theory surrounding the marks that I mentioned before that are found on her face and back, which some say are consistent with a stun gun, which is the marks were actually made by a model train because in the basement they had a train room which had those like real fancy model train tracks. And some people who believe her younger brother killed her believe that the train tracks were used to prod her to see if she was dead because the little train tracks, because it's like a proper electric thing, they have these little metal prongs that yeah. come out of the end, which are about the same distance apart as the metal would be on a stun gun. So some people say the marks actually don't look like those caused by a stun gun. They look like the little pins from the train track that someone's used to like prod her unconscious body. Hmm. Yeah. And that, little piece of evidence also links up with the main theory that her brother killed her. Yeah. So just to confirm, the little brother's age is... Was it eight? He was nine at the time of the murder. And then she was... Six. Yeah. That would... That would make sense. Along with that, with the pineapple thing, being adamant that, like, no pineapple was given to her. When a bowl of pineapple was present in the house and she has pineapple in her digestive system and we know from my story that that's a a, a piece of evidence that's Mm -hmm. you are connected to the things you have in your stomach yeah and a lot of people there was another thing i read about the pineapple that said someone was talking about how digestion times are very different but then someone argued that um some stuff that's found in her like second intestine tract so the one that's after where the pineapple was found yeah they found food from the christmas party that she'd been at so they argue that obviously it means the timeline of when she had the pineapple has to be about an hour and a half to two hours because the food she had at the christmas party was already well through her digestive system Mm -hmm. so yeah that's the kind of big pieces of evidence Wow. And that is mind blowing. Yeah. So the three main theories, which I won't go into, the three main theories are one is the intruder theory, yep. one is the theory that Burke accidentally killed her and then did horrible things to her after and then her parents helped him cover it up. Yeah. And then the third is that her father did it. Those are like the three big And it, this is still something that's still being disputed still, to Patsy the day. has now passed away. Patsy passed away from ovarian cancer in 2006. Right. The, the brother is still... 
The brother is still alive and did a Dr. Phil interview like three years ago. Really? Which is fucking creepy. And we'll talk about that next week. Wow. He's a creepy ass kid, man. And again, I know, as we've said, you can't judge someone's trauma response. But man, he But it's easy to do so. You know what I mean? Like, it's often you can link it to such things. Uh, but yeah, there are some very interesting things regarding specifically the intruder theory, which came to light somewhat recently. I think September last year. Oh, okay. Further information right. came up if my memory serves me correctly. But we will get into that next week because they deserve time to be discussed on yes. their own. Amazing. Would it be just... Next level, if they were to solve these crimes. The Jean Bonnet one would be huge. Because that's a widely disputed thing. Yeah. It's not like the um, the Dingo Emma Baby case in Australia, where it's like you can kind of clearly see discrepancies between the theories that the mother did it, or the parents did it, rather. Well, I guess the thing with... The Chamberlain story is the the concept of Lindy killing the baby never really makes no fit. sense. Yeah. There was nothing to support it. Like the timeline of events didn't really match. Yeah. And whereas, they find evidence to release her. Whereas the theory of her brother killing her kind of fits the timeline and also makes sort of sense like obviously as parents you love both your children fiercely 100%, so yeah. you come downstairs you see one of your children has killed, killed another i guess from your perspective you're already thinking one of my children is already dead i don't want the other one Lose to go to jail one. exactly yeah. so it kind of anyway i don't we'll get in because there's so much to unravel in those things i, we'll I am that. so intrigued because like, like you said we we don't we we try not to disclose. Uh, 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 we, we try to keep it as, as minimal as possible in terms of telling each other what we're doing. Like, in terms of like, I'll we will talk about what we're doing in terms of like the killer or the story or the subject, but we won't go into details and give each other like the brass what we know and the the, the surface details. It's like mm. we we want to keep it as fresh as possible because it makes it more interesting for the show. And yeah, of course. Just listening to that, I'm just so ready for next week to learn the, the theories about it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm very glad. But I was very nervous to do that one because it's such a big case and there's so yeah. many different things and there's so many different sources that you can use to like back up your information and so many people know so much about this case. Yeah. So I would like to put a little footnote is we... While we do try and research these podcasts as best as we can, we are in no way experts in this field. No. So if I have said something that is incorrect or not worded something properly, please don't yell at me. I'm doing my best. And that goes for every episode. <laughs> if we yeah, that's just ever a upload. For every episode. If we, we do fuck our up, best. if we fuck up, it's on us, and it's not because we're we're experts in the field. I do my best, and I try. My thing is, I try not to bring things up unless. I can validate the information from like three yeah, or four different sources because then yeah. I know it's probably accurate because you yeah. know, four or five different places are saying the same thing. If I find something like, I think it was last week when I did Paul Stefani, 
there are a few things that I could only find mentioned in like one article. So I try and add a little footnote saying like, yep. I could only validate this from one source. So like, don't come at me if it's not yeah. accurate. My thing is like um, YouTube videos, then articles, and then Wikipedia. That's my like my my holy trinity. I feel Wikipedia because Wikipedia is not known for their factual accuracy, but I find it's the best place to start to get like a skeleton yes of yeah. the facts and then validate it all through more kind of like reputable sources of information. But also Wikipedia has like every detail to the tenth. So if there's something missing from like the articles for example, like reading through Wikipedia and then going and look at the articles, you go, okay, that matches up, that matches up, that matches yeah. up. And then like, oh, but this isn't the article, but it kind of makes sense. It's just, the, it's like the extra mm, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, most of the articles talk about how, in in my case, with um with the first victim of of, of the the alphabet killer, um, Carmen, her uncle being related to the murders with his car and the fact that he cleaned the car wasn't referenced in certain articles but it was in the wikipedia articles and yeah different youtube videos mm. so it's kind of you know that's where we kind of we, we find the important facts and the important details through i guess the method of yeah we do we really do try our best yeah we try we we, we try we really try so please don't yell at me we don't me. have fucking you know we don't we didn't go to we didn't go to university or for well the i mean americans, i do go to university but not for this for the americans we didn't go to college for such i don't go to things. college i don't have like student loans because i didn't go to college i think my american accent is pretty good you have been to America, so that's, that's one true. thing you have of America. But I was only there for like a couple of weeks, so I don't know if that really... Yeah, fair enough. I, may, I just watch a lot of American sitcoms. You do. Yeah, I, we both and Everything do. I know from Friends. Yeah. But you also, you also watch like Gossip Girl and... Yeah, that's very true. The OC, so you know... You know an American accent when you see one. Mm. Um. So, we're going to try this new thing where, because we didn't really know, like we always kind of have a bit of an awkward dance trying to end these episodes because it's like how do you segue out of these horrific yeah. murders to like sort of end it on a, not a happy note but like a bit of a lighter note so we decided we were going to talk about good things that happened this week so do you want to do you want to say your good thing first and you go first That's well good. my good thing is like such a simple small thing but i find it's the small things that bring you joy mm-hmm. i found this beautiful company online that does reclaimed like glassware yeah and they're called i believe i'm pronouncing this correctly nabulani and they do like vintage and recycled glassware and for someone who has spent my life since i moved out of home living with the cheapest shittiest stuff from like ikea and kmart that i could find it's nice to be like slowly upgrading things with like nice things really? which is such a luxury that i didn't ever really think i would be able to have but we're like lucky to be in a financial position where we can yeah slowly upgrade things that we've had for years that we bought for like two dollars from 
Kmart to have nice things. And I found this beautiful set of like vintage wine glasses that should be in our house in a couple of weeks. And I'm just very excited. It's like a small... Hell yeah. It's like such a small thing, but it just brings me joy to like... Yeah, it's a, it's a good feeling to have that there. Nice yeah. things in your house. Yeah, that was, nice. that was my good thing for the week. My, my good thing for the week is... I, I get two things, if that's allowed. You only get one, Tama. Well, I'm going to do two because I'm making up for the early, the previous years. The weeks, sorry. Previous years. Years and years. Um, so, the first nice thing this week is uh, I spent the weekend, well, one day of the weekend, playing Risk with a couple of friends. And I came second amongst a group of six of us. So, I'm pretty happy with that. This is my second, third time playing Risk. And I won the very first time. Uh, I lost dramatically the second time and came second the third time. So, pretty happy with that. You know? Um, very nice. The other thing that I'm pretty happy with is uh, a friend from work recently acquired a Roland synth, which is... Um, it's a synthesizer that, was, that predates the Juno synthesizers, which I'm a huge fan of Juno synthesizers. Um, if my band name doesn't give you any indication of that being Juno itself, um, yeah, like that, it's really cool. I can't wait to like. Hopefully, my friend allows me to play with it. I would love to muck around with it, and make some music out of it, and um, I feel like this is a great time for me musically because I th- we're, we're we're trying a lot of different things, and we're kind of uh, I got a whole setup in our podcast room right now with um, my MIDI keyboard. Mm. Um, I got a little keyboard and a. Uh, ZI8, Alan Heath mixer, you know, I got all my stuff here. I feel like it's a good time. I'm just really, I'm really thankful for that. And I think it's um, something to mention yeah. to kind of like bring a positive That's note. Good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Like music for me is really kind of popping this year. Yeah, I'm glad. Well, that was like quite a wholesome, lovely way to finish the episode. Yeah. A few housekeeping things just before we go. We are aware that the mini-sodes have not gone live for two weeks, mainly because I've just started university, which is college for Mm -hmm. you guys, and I do it online full-time and I work full-time and I have a graphic design business and I do this. And a second podcast. very... Oh, and a second podcast because... Why I not? Hate myself. And trying to live a normal life, and with trying to like go to the gym cook. and like eat healthy yeah. and like get enough hours sleep and just like be a spend time with my partner being. and friends. Yeah. So I'm very time poor at the moment. So I do apologize. I want to make it clear, like we didn't do those mini sods as like, oh, we're gonna do this thing for like two weeks, so we look like we're woke and then we're gonna yeah. stop doing it. I've just genuinely not had time and been a little bit disorganized. So we've decided we're going to sit down once a month and we're going to record a month's worth of episodes in one sitting because they're only 10 minutes. So they're very easy for us to record in bulk where these episodes go for like an hour and a half and it's too much to speak for that long. So we're going to sit down probably maybe this weekend. Yep. Maybe. Yeah, 100%. Record like four or five episodes and then schedule them. Uh, But yeah, it's my fault. We weren't trying to like be pretend work. We genuinely are passionate about doing these. I've just been really time poor and struggling with my time management. Mm-hmm. 
Second, we are having our first guest on the show yeah, next I'm week. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. Our friend Noni, who is an incredible artist. Love her. But also a true crime obsessed person, much like us. She'll be coming on the show next week and we'll be aiming to just, we'll do our stories, but slightly shorter and Noni will do her story. And it's exciting because we're having our first guest. So that'll be new and exciting and it could be an absolute train wreck, but we'll we did see it. what happens. That's At least we're trying new things. Exactly. And that's the that's theme. what it's all about. It's the theme of our show, trying new things. Trying new things and when they don't work, we go, well, fuck. Shit. But I feel like that's the best way to do something is to try it and then realize it doesn't work and then try yeah. something else. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And I think that's all we need to say for the episode. That's about it. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm curious. No, uh, I'm curious to see how um, these stories traffic because obviously unsolved crimes are a bit, you know, tedi- not tedious, um, unsatisfactory in the terms that there's, yeah, there's not a resolution. Yeah, there's going to be that, like, nice, fuzzy feeling yeah. of feeling like justice has been served because someone's been yeah, put away. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's no Ted Bundy locked up and then, you know, sentenced to, to, to life in prison. Yeah, how, yeah. how about that? <laughs> anyway, well, well, that's that's for, sorry, <laughs> that's for, for a f- future episode. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's me. Do you have anything else to add? I love you all who listen to the show. I love you all too. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend. Have a great week. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye.